Toasty seven degrees here in New York. That's fun. <laughs> seven degrees. Oh my goodness. What are we doing? This is crazy. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to be dunking on Howard Schultz today because, of course, I mean, his he is a, a significantly worse politician than even Donald Trump. He makes Donald Trump seem like the best politician in human history. That's how bad Howard Schultz is. Um, so I'm going to thoroughly enjoy making fun of him. We also have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Wait until you hear what the corporate Democrats are trying to do to her. Um, you'll get another solid belly laugh out of that. And then we have um, a cadre of billionaires who are so self-important and smug that they want to run the country. Michael Bloomberg is also dipping his toe in the water for the 2020 presidential race, and he's uh, basically using the roadmap of Howard Schultz in terms of strategy, and that is not going well. (laughs) And I got an update on the planned coup in Venezuela. You're not going to want to miss that. And I'm going to give you a nice little breakdown of the problem in democratic politics of what I call weasel words. We have a great um, demonstration of that for you on CNN, where Debbie Wasserman Schultz went on and explained, uh, you know, something about Kamala's position on Medicare for All. So you're not going to want to miss that. Um, A lot of stuff today, including, um, I'll give you one more tease. CNN explains or Chris Saliza of CNN, I should say, explains why he thinks Kamala Harris is the number one, uh, is the favorite going into the 2020 Democratic primary. And he doesn't actually give a single data point, not one, not one. He just, the entire time he's just talking 
um, out of his ass and just giving his opinion and pretending like it's somehow more than an opinion. All right, so let's get started. And I don't have my videos in a row today. I don't have them in order, which might present a little bit of a problem, but we'll see. Um, we're going to do Howard Schultz on The View first. Okay, you're going to like this. So billionaire, soon-to-be independent presidential candidate Howard Schultz uh, is continuing his tour of embarrassing himself uh, throughout the whole country. He's The thing that frustrates me is that the only reason he's even allowed on all these major TV programs and the only reason he's getting coverage nonstop in print outlets is because he's a billionaire. So, you know, Tulsi Gabbard, for example, has been running for president for a while now. Um, or she announced that I'm going to run for president. And she has gotten like 10% of the coverage that Howard Schultz has gotten because Howard Schultz bought his way into the room. He bought legitimacy. And that's what frustrates me is that like we're watching this oligarchy, this plutocracy just unfold in front of us and nobody questions the most basic parts of it. Like, hey, maybe he shouldn't just, by virtue of the fact that he has a lot of money, like hop in front of the line and just get more coverage than almost anybody else who's running. I mean, Richard Ojeda was running for a while. He had to drop out because he wasn't getting any coverage at all. So um, it's frustrating, but he, every time he opens his mouth, he shoves his foot in it. It's really hilariously dumb. So here he is. He went on uh, The View. Now, you would think The View, they'd play, you know, patty cakes and hold hands and sing kumbaya with him. They did not do that. And he's so embarrassingly off about everything he says that he even gets schooled by Meghan McCain here. So look at this little compilation of him on The View. that a Republican is going to win. Sure. And I know I you're don't, I don't agree with you. I know you don't. I don't agree with I know you. you. In fact, not only do I not agree with you, but I think if President Trump runs against a far-left progressive liberal what Democrat. What against Biden? Biden's the middle of the race. But Biden hasn't, Biden hasn't come into the race yet. Yeah. But let me just, let's finish. If he runs against a far-left progressive person who is suggesting 60-70% tax increases on the rich, and a health care system that we can't pay for. I don't know that President that. Trump yeah. is going to get reelected. Oh. I, I think if you believe in what you believe in, then stand up for that as a Democrat and then change the party if you feel like that, as opposed to going elsewhere. That was what I wanted to finish. Okay, okay. okay. Uh, can I ask you all one question? Mm -hmm. Maybe even the audience. Does anyone believe the current system, not only the president, but the current political system and our government is working well on behalf of the American people? Not since Obama was elected, no. 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 I do think it's the best but system that we have. Money in campaigns and money in yeah. politics, and you're a glaring example that as long as you're a billionaire, you can run for anything. And my problem with politics right now is the influence of money. And, and no shade at you, but you do have to be a billionaire to run as an independent. That's why Michael Bloomberg gives yeah. an example you've given. Well, you, but you can't, you can't buy the presidency. The American people are going to decide. But let, let me just make one point. No. Can I make one point? With regard to New Hampshire and Iowa, watch every Democrat go to those states and have to be disingenuous and probably make a false prom promise about Fentanyl just to be able to get elected in the primary in those states. I would have to be disingenuous as a Democrat if I ran as a Democrat because 
In order to run as a Democrat today, you have to fall in line with free Medicare for everybody, free, free college for everybody, a free job for everybody. Let me finish. But that's and that, what and you that, said you were given to your own. Well, that's what you just said you were given to everybody. No, but not, not the way, the, not free for the, for the government. And that totally totals about $40 trillion on top of the fact that we are sitting on a $21 trillion debt in the, in the country today. Mm -hmm. We can't afford to do it free, so it has to be a different way. Here's why Howard Schultz might literally be the worst politician I've ever seen in my life to this point. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating at all. I mean, I honestly think even if you take characters like Mike Huckabee or Rick Santorum, who I totally disagree with ideologically, they had a base of support they were shoring up. And that base of support is fundamentalist evangelical Christians. So even though you and I hear what Rick Santorum or Mike Huckabee says and we like cringe and we're like, oh, my God, how does anybody buy into this? They have a solid base of support there, and they're playing to that crowd, and that crowd loves them. Howard Schultz has no base of support. The only people who nod along to what he's saying are, honestly, people who are socially liberal, but also working on Wall Street, and they're massively fiscally conservative and corporatist. Now, that number of people is so tiny. I mean, at least you have like 20% of the country, maybe 25% of the country in the evangelical Christian base that Santorum and Huckabee are shoring up, and which is why they had some support when they ran for office. Howard Schultz has nobody. I mean, we're talking about 1% of the population who hears him and goes, oh, I think this guy's making sense. To this point, he's been running for a, a couple days now, like four days or so. He hasn't said anything about what he's for. Everything he's been talking about is what he's against. And what he's against is Bernie Sanders' philosophy, Bernie Sanders' ideology. And he doesn't even give good reasons as to why he's against these things. He's just like, yeah, we're against it, can't afford it. Now, by the way, empirically, factually, objectively wrong. And, uh, you know, I am so sick and tired of the media just letting idiots get away with saying things that are untrue because it's conventional bubble wisdom in Washington, D.C. So, you know, I tweeted about it yesterday. I gave the exact study. It was a study from the University of Massachusetts Amherst that found that Medicare for All over a 10-year period saves $5.1 trillion. I use that study because that study is obviously more accurate than the, the, than the Mercatus Institute, which was funded by the Koch brothers, which is libertarian-leaning. They say it's only going to save $2 trillion over 10 years. So, but even if you're taking that number, then at the low end it saves $2 trillion over 10 years. So when he comes out there and he says, oh, there's no way we can afford this, Howard Schultz, you need to understand something. You're just wrong. It's not like, oh, my God, let me put a spin on this, and let me just give you my conjecture, and let me just tell you my opinion, and I'm a business guy, so you have to take my word for it. No, no, no. We live in, in the age of fact-checking. We're able to look into what you say and, and match it up with the reality. And it turns out, Howard Schultz, you're just wrong about what you're saying. So not only are you not laying out a positive vision, but you're also just wrong about what you're criticizing and, oh, yeah, by the way, everything you're criticizing happens to be wildly popular. The only thing he said so far about, uh, about his health care plan, you're going to love this, is, oh, I'd sit down with all the industry leaders and we'd figure it out. So you mean you'd, like, do Obamacare? That's the individual mandate system. That's the right-wing reform that Obama ended up implementing with Democratic support and no Republican support. It was originally their idea, but they backed off it because evil, bad, black president guy eventually supported it and came to their idea. So that's, the, that's where you sit down with all the uh, for-profit health insurance companies and you say, okay, we're going to leave you in control. You know, you are a giant industry and we're not going to uh, ruffle your feathers at all. 
and uh, we're going to actually hand you over um, a captive audience and a captive uh, group of clientele because we're going to mandate that people buy from you guys. So your genius plan is Obamacare, which was already implemented. And by the way, he doesn't know any of the details or any of the specifics because he's refused to give any because his entire time going around the country has been scolding lefties and scolding Bernie Sanders' ideology. So he's just terrible at this. Now, even Meghan McCain was like, listen, the only reason anybody's taking you seriously is because you're a billionaire. And he's like, well, you can't buy the presidency in the United States of America. And then the audience laughed. The audience at The View laughed. Lonely middle-aged housewives laughed at you, Howard Schultz. Why? Because even they know and they probably haven't studied this issue deeply, but even they know on a visceral gut level, that's kind of bullshit. Yeah, you, you pretty much can. I mean, 93% of the time in Congress, the person who raises the most money ends up winning. And you're a billionaire. That's the only reason you're fucking sitting here. That's the only reason you're sitting there. If I had announced that I was running for president as an independent, would I have gotten this media tour around the country going on all the shows? No. Nobody would, nobody would fucking cover me. I honestly doubt even other progressive outlets would cover me. Well, by the way, I can't run for president. I'm not of the uh, proper age yet. But assuming I was, I don't even think the other progressive outlets would cover me. So this guy, with all this money, the only reason he's taken seriously, he's like, oh, how dare you insist that it's because of my money that I'm being taken seriously. Okay, then um, I got to bust up another non-fact that he presents as a fact. He says, well, if Trump runs against um, the far left, well, he's going to win. And that's why I'm running, because I'm afraid that if the Democrats are going to nominate a far lefty, and then that'll hand it over to Trump. Look at the lazy assumption there. First of all, if only we could, I don't know, maybe run your experiment, Howard Schultz, and have like a corporate centristy Democrat run for president against Donald Trump and see what happens. Oh, wait a second. That is exactly what happened in 2016. You had the corporate centrist. You had the neoliberal. You had Hillary Clinton who's very much in line with you, by the way, Hillary Clinton wanted Howard Schultz as her secretary of labor. (laughs) Hilarious! And what happened? Donald Trump ended up winning. If only we could run the experiment of how corporate Democrats do. Oh, that's right, we did. Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, when they were in control of the Democratic Party, they lost 1,000 seats. It's only now that we have this populist left wave that the Democrats started winning back seats. So... They always, this is what you have to do. And it reminds me of the right-wingers, honestly, because right-wingers, what they do is they always act like they never implemented their economic proposals. When we've had their economic proposals implemented time and time again, we did it in the 19-teens and 1920s, leading up to the Great Depression. Uh, And we did it uh, under Reagan, which led to a giant recession when Reagan got out of office. And we did it under uh, Bill Clinton with the repeal of Glass-Steagall and George W. Bush with his rampant deregulation and tax cuts for the rich. And every time we implement trickle-down economics, we have a boom-bust cycle. But every time Republican politicians talk, they act as if there's no history behind what they're saying and that, that we didn't implement their ideas. Like, oh, if only somebody would do trickle-down economics, then this economy would be in great shape. We've been doing it time and time again, and every time the same shit happens, it's a boom-bust cycle. It's a mess. It's terrible. It's the wrong way to go. And all of the evidence says that, and they just ignore it. Well, it's the same thing here with Howard Schultz. I'm afraid that the Democrats nominate a far lefty that they're going to lose. The history is the exact opposite of what you're saying, Howard Schultz. FDR was a, a, a crusading social democrat. Okay, doesn't mean he doesn't have problems with Japanese internment and segregation still existed under him. So massive problems. But on economic issues, he was a social democrat. He got reelected four times. 
he was so unbeatable that the Republicans were like, holy shit, we need to come up with an idea like term limits, because if we don't do that, the country's just going to keep voting for these social Democrats because they, they're good for the country and the people like them. So we have to like cheat in a way and come up with a weird idea to try to make it so that we get in power, because we're not going to get in power otherwise. If they keep running social Democrats, we're fucked. So Bernie Sanders also is another great example of this. He, he repeatedly polls as the most liked politician in America. He also happens to be in Washington, D.C., one of the furthest left, if not the furthest left, um, politician. That's not a coincidence, man. That's not a coincidence. But it's the lazy assumption, and nobody in the media calls him on it. Nobody calls him, oh, my God, if, if we run a far lefty in the Democratic Party, that'll hand it over to Trump. The opposite is true. If we run another corporatist, it hands it over to Trump. All the data shows that if you run a far lefty, we're, we're going to end up winning. So, and then um, notice he, he specifically goes after two policies there. Like, again, worst politician ever because he says, oh, like uh, the set, top 70% uh, marginal tax rate, uh, uh, unworkable idea, bad idea, the free uh, Medicare for all, terrible idea. Even in a, in, a, in a different clip, he even went on to say it's un-American to want Medicare for all. Dude, 59% of the country agrees with AOC's top marginal tax uh, rate idea, 70% rate on all income above $10 million a year. 59%. And the Medicare for all now, it's 70%, including a majority of independents and a majority of Republicans. So when you go out there and slam these overwhelmingly popular ideas you look like an asshole, and you're telling most of the country, you called, just called most of the country un-American because you said Medicare for All is un-American, and 70% of the country wants Medicare for All. And by the way, every other developed country has one version or another of a single-payer system. So when you say it's unworkable or we can't afford it, first of all, it saves money, but second of all, it, every other developed country has it. It's obviously not unworkable. It's the default. It's the thing that makes the most sense. So he's the worst politician in the world because he thinks that all of his like default rich guy opinions are just things that everybody uh, agrees with. He's never read a poll in his life. He doesn't understand that he's in his own bubble and that, like, his money has made him massively out of touch. It, ha- it just has, you know, it, because he has health care. He doesn't have to worry about paying the bills like that. We covered two stories on the last show about the, the disgusting disaster our, our health care system is. One woman getting arrested for fraud because she let a sick kid use her health insurance because um, – he didn't come into school, and he was sick, and she was the school superintendent, and she helped him out, and they arrested her. You know, another one about an insurance company switching insulin, um, insulin makers, and then it didn't work, and so the parents had to beg to go back on the other insulin, which did work, and the kid almost died because of this dumbass health insurance company. Like, this shit happens every single fucking day in the United States of America. We have up to 45,000 people dying because they don't have access to basic health care. And his smug-ass rich guy default opinion is like, oh, please, you want to, like, give everybody care and, and improve the quality of care and save money in the process? Oh, what a bad idea. Dude, you're a joke. Every tweet he's done, I'm not kidding about this, every tweet he's done to this point has been ratioed. You know what ratio is? It's when there's more replies than there are likes or retweets. So that means that people, whenever he tweets anything, people are just shitting on him in the replies and saying, fuck you, what are you doing, you're a loser, you shouldn't be running, you're, you're narcissistic, um, nobody wants you in the race, blah, 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 blah. So, and the, oh, and last point is the, the debt mongering. Listen, man, all of the debt mongering stems from a, 
a fundamental, mis- fundamental misunderstanding of economics. If you haven't yet, do yourself a favor and read a little bit about what's called modern monetary theory. Okay? It's almost like a post-Keynesian economic worldview that's, that's more of a leftist perspective. It's, it's typically viewed that like Austrian economics is the right-wing uh, interpretation of economics, and then you have Keynesian economics, which is generally described as the left-wing um, view of economics. But there's this somewhat new um, theory or, or school of thought, which is called modern monetary theory, Stephanie Kelton is one of the, the you know, number one economists and, and promoters of this ideology. And go read about that if you haven't yet, because basically everything you think you know about is wrong, especially when you issue your own currency as a nation. So to think of debt like you would think of personal debt uh, for a country, it just, it, it's not analogous. It's not analogous because you as an individual can't print your own fucking currency. Whereas, you know, if you issue your own currency, you can print your own currency. And what exactly is it that leads to hyperinflation, for example, or inflation? Um, Why exactly is it that, for example, in Japan, they've been warning, like, oh, my God, there's going to be a debt crisis, and they've been saying that for decades now, and there hasn't been? Why? Why is that? Well, go read a little bit about modern monetary theory, and they'll explain it. But basically, understand that all the deficit scolding and, and, and debt hawks their worldview is fundamentally based in a right-wing assumption. And that's why, you know, you'll see very clearly every time somebody warns about the debt and the deficit, they never do it in relation to massive tax cuts for corporations and, and the wealthy. And they never talk about that in relation to runaway uh, offensive military spending. They never do it in regards to corporate welfare for Wall Street and big banks. So, they only trot out these arguments very clearly when it's about health care and education and spending for the people. That should be red flags right there in your mind. You should go, whoa, what's going on here? That's weird. You never care about debt when it's all these other things, but when it's for regular people, you all of a sudden you care about debt. And Howard Schultz is fundamentally based on that right-wing worldview. And, you know, he's the classic guy who's like, oh, me? I don't hate gay people. I don't hate black people. So I'm obviously so progressive. But let me, you know, debt fearmonger nonstop now. And let me also say how we can't have Medicare for all, even though it saves money and covers everybody. And we can't have free college, even though that would be barely the amount of money we increased military spending this year would cover free college and then some. So do you understand that? Not the entire military budget, just the amount of money we increased the military budget this year would cover free college and then some. So he doesn't know the fuck he's talking about and he's dead wrong. But fundamentally, he has a right wing worldview and he might not know it. And he, he thinks he's like the billionaire who's going to save the day, and he's the last serious man on the planet. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's an embarrassing figure, and he's going to get utterly obliterated. Um, there's really nothing else to say about this, but I will continue to dunk on him because, honestly, he is one of the worst politicians I've ever seen. At the very least, you're supposed to, like, dress up your disagreement with wildly popular policies. He's not doing it. And he's not even saying anything he's for. He's just, uh, I'm against uh, this, and I'm against this. I'm against anything that the American people want. Vote for me. You're about to get a rude awakening, son. Okay, next. So you guys are going to laugh your ass off about this. This is great. Some Democrats 
float idea of primary challenge for Ocasio-Cortez. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has infuriated colleagues by aligning with a progressive outside group that's threatening to primary entrench Democrats. Now, some of those lawmakers are turning the tables on her and are discussing recruiting a primary challenger to run against the social media sensation. At least one House Democrat has been privately urging members of the New York delegation to recruit a local politician from the Bronx or Queens to challenge Ocasio-Cortez. What I have recommended to the New York delegation is that you find her primary opponent and make her a one-term congressperson, the Democratic lawmaker who requested anonymity. <clears throat> By the way, what a fucking weaselly conniving asshole told the Hill. Quote, you've got numerous council people and state legislators who've been waiting 20 years for that seat. I'm sure they can find numerous people who want that seat in that district. Look at the sense of entitlement that they have. <laughs> People have been waiting for that seat. That's not the way a democracy works. That's not the way it works at all. You have to at least pretend to care about the things that we're supposed to hold dear. Yeah, so people have been waiting. Don't you know it's their turn? What the fuck is this? What the fuck is this? No. Are you for the people or are you not for the people? Do you have, can you get them to agree with you? Can you lay out a policy vision that they support and then they vote for you or not? The fact, the sense of like, what do you mean? I've been working inside the Democratic machine all this time, so obviously I'm owed that seat, right? Only in a totally backwards, corrupt, disgusting system where these elites uh, can't even see straight and realize what they're supposed to at least pretend to believe in. Um, now, by the way, I like how they don't even mention the name Justice Democrat. It, it's, I've been seeing a lot of this recently, and to the extent anybody even covers Justice Democrats, I'm going to give you a little sour grapes here now because I am a little sour over this. None of the articles have ever mentioned myself, and very few of them have ever mentioned Jake Uecker. Even when, even when they're literally discussing the founding of it, bear, no mention at all. It's really strange. It's almost like they're making a decision to not cover that. Now, maybe they're not, and they're just ignorant, and they don't know, and they're not doing their basic research. Whatever the reason is, it's kind of infuriating because then I have to go read in these articles of people who just learned about Justice Democrats like three and a half minutes uh, ago, I, I have to read what they say we're about, and they almost always get it wrong. Like, I just saw a tweet the other day that said, um, the real move of uh, the left nowadays is they're trying to make Medicare for all the, the uh, position for Democratic politicians so that eventually we get, like, a public option. Who said that? You said that. We didn't say that. You said that. As a co-founder of Justice Democrats, I will tell you very clearly and up front, it's part of the literal litmus test because we need it and we need it now. It's not like we're playing some fucking weird, you know, multi-step game where it's like, okay, we'll take a half measure now. No. If anything, that should have been Obama's position of, I'm calling for Medicare for all. Okay, fine. I'll meet you in the middle and we'll do a public option. And so then we can build off that to get Medicare for all for real. But no, they're now saying like the left's position is what the original Obama position should have been. And like, oh, we're just trying to get like a public option or, or Medicare expansion to, you know, 55 or something that you, you can buy in when you're 55 or Medicare buy-in. It's like, no, we actually want Medicare for all. Stop telling us what we believe and listen to what we're fucking telling you. So they don't even mention the name Justice Democrat. And by the way, look at how... They're just shocked over this. Like, oh, Ocasio-Cortez is aligning with an outside group that does primaries. If you knew anything about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you would have known that from day one she was with Justice Democrats. 
and that it's because of the infrastructure of Justice Democrats that allowed Ocasio-Cortez to go out there and do a tremendous job in her own respect and flourish and get elected. But she'll be the first ones to tell you that uh, Justice Democrats recruited her. So this idea of, like, I can't believe she's aligning with this group. She's been aligned with them since day one, you ignorant fucking fools. They don't know anything, and they just casually talk about it. Now, let's get to the most important point, which is, oh, my God, um, we have the, Demo- uh, the corporate Democrats now on a primary here. Good luck. <laughs> like, it's, it's, they've done this to Ro Khanna, too. There's been whispers of, like, ah, we should primary Ro Khanna. Good luck with that. Now, what, what did I tell you guys from the beginning when we launched Justice Democrats? What did I tell you guys? I told you guys, you just have to give people the option of populist left, and they're going to pick it. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't some giant institutional hurdles uh, to get over, because there are. Like, for example, we're usually at a permanent monetary disadvantage in these races because we only take uh, donations from small-dollar donors, so that puts you at a disadvantage because there's no big-money donors, there's no big-money bundling, there's no corporate PACs, there's none of that stuff. So we're almost always going to raise less money which makes it harder to win because it's hard to get your name out there, and nobody fucking covers you the entire time. Nobody covered AOC except us and other uh, you know, independent media outlets until she won. So it, it's a harder fight, but I always told you guys, as long as people have the option of populist left, and they know they have that option because that option is covered and presented, they're going to pick populist left. So now to watch these like ineffectual clowns trying to say, like, well, maybe we'll just primary her. She's become a fucking powerhouse in the Democratic Party. Not because she's playing insider politics, but for the exact opposite reason. Because she's not playing insider politics, but she's, she's in the House. And so she's willing to fight for the people and represent the people and not play along with the party. And that's, you know, one, one of the reasons why. I mean, look at how many fucking Twitter followers she has. She has more, if I'm not mistaken, she has more Twitter followers than any congressperson. So she's already a massively powerful figure, specifically because she's just fighting for working people and she's not going along to get along. So this idea of like, well, maybe we'll just primary her. Go right ahead. Go ahead and embarrass yourselves and further prove that what we did with Justice Democrats was absolutely necessary because we finally ran some people who care about the people that they're supposed to represent. And when you do that, and when people know they have that option, it's not even going to be fucking close, man. Go ahead. Send, uh, you know, corrupt Joe Crowley up to run against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez again. You know what? Go ahead. Play your cynical games and say, oh, well, obviously we need another young woman of color to run against Ocasio-Cortez. And if we fully fund that young woman of color, the different one, well, maybe, it'll, maybe we'll be able to beat her. <laughs> Good luck, bitch. Good luck. And by the way, get used to it. You know what Ro Khanna says when... Um, you know, people say, hey, man, we're going to primary you. He goes, go right ahead. You want to know why he says that? Because he believes in what he's arguing for. He believes in his ideology. He believes in his philosophy. He believes he can convince the people who he's representing, here's how I'm fighting for you, and here's why you should know that, and here's the proof. Here are the bills I've proposed. Here's what I've been doing since I've been elected. So Ro Khanna says, I welcome primary challengers. I got nothing to worry about. I got nothing to, you know, fear. I got nothing to hide about because... I know what I'm doing. I'm confident in the job that I'm doing. And so every other Democratic politician who's not populist left, they're scared of these primary challenges, and they get offended at the idea of even floating them. 
They want like, well, oh, no, what do you mean? I have, I have job security now, right? Because I'm a corporatist who got elected with a fucking tiny percentage of the vote that came out to vote for me in an election nobody even came out to vote for. So I'm good now, right? Don't I have job security? How dare you, uh, you know, float the idea of maybe primarying me because I, have, I took money from fucking whatever, Merrill Lynch, or I took money from the, the defense industry or what have you. So they're, they're all so fucking entitled. Like they don't know why they're there. They don't know what their job is supposed to be. Um, they don't understand that primaries are a good thing. It strengthens the party. In fact, that's what um, uh, Shoykat Chakrabarty, who's uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's uh, top staff or chief of, chief of staff or whatever the fuck it's called, um, he tweeted that. He's like, okay, so let me get this straight. The, Dem- the corporate Democrats now want to primary Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, so at least we can all now agree the primaries are good, right? At least we all agree to that now because you're on the record. You're saying primaries are good. But see, what they do is they do cynical weaponization. So they say, scream at you to unify with them if one of them is elected and you want to primary them. Oh, what are you doing? Party unity. How dare you? No, no, no primaries. Primaries are bad. How- They're so rude. But then when you reverse it, and it's somebody who's actually representing the people who's, uh, who's in power, then all of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, primaries are great, and we just strengthen the party, and we'll do that. What happened to unity? I thought you said you believed in unity. But no, Shoykot's right. Primaries are a good thing. Primaries are a positive thing. Primaries will determine who's actually representing the people. And obviously we've got to get the money out of, out of politics because that sometimes skews the situation. But, yeah, ultimately, as long as we have people running on small-dollar donations, and as long as we have a fair fight with equal megaphones, yeah, primary all day long. So I'm not even offended by this. I just think it's funny that they think they even have a prayer to defeat her. She, anybody you throw at her, she will defeat. In fact, you know, she should probably run for Senate next time she runs because I don't think they could, I don't think they have the weapons necessary to fight back against her and win. I just don't think they do. Because um, they've been trying and they've been failing. And in a similar way, like with Bernie, every time they try to go after Bernie, they make him stronger. Honestly, it's the same kind of thing with Trump. Anytime the mainstream media goes after Trump with shitty arguments, they make him stronger. So it's the same thing with AOC. They try to go after her and they make her stronger because, I don't know if you know this, she can respond. She can respond to you. And that's what she's been doing, whether it's attacks from corporate Democrats or attacks from Republicans, she responds. And... She usually wins. So I just find it hilarious that they finally get, so we finally get a politician in there who's very popular, represents working people, and also checks those diversity boxes that the corporate Democrats say they care so much about because they care so deeply about identity politics. A young woman of color. I mean, that should be, in their minds, oh my God, I'm never allowed to criticize her ever because she checks all those boxes. But all that gets thrown out the window because you, you, Ultimately, the corporate Democrats, what they really care about is protecting their donors and giving you 2% change, not representing the will of the people, not representing working people, not fighting, but doing the bidding of their donors and not rocking the boat and staying within uh, party politics. And now that we have somebody who's popular and who stepped outside of that framework and is representing the people, they should be loving it and embracing it because it actually helps the Democratic Party, but no, they're not doing that. They want to take her out because she stepped out of line by being too hard on the donor class, too hard on the party leaders. Well, it's a new day in America. 
So you guys better get used to this because all your old shitty party machine politic tricks, they're not going to work anymore. They're not going to work anymore. Because now there's, we have these candidates doing the right thing, and also you have a giant media apparatus supporting these candidates. Virtually all of left new media is here to watch the corporate Democrats like a hawk and call out their bullshit. So be careful what you wish for. Oh, you want a primary her? Go right ahead. I'd love to have a laugh that's akin to the kind of laughs I've been having at Howard Schultz's expense. Because no doubt, if they do primary her, it'll be somebody with less than no prayer of winning and somebody who will um, expose the house of cards and the paper tiger that the corporate Democrat establishment is. And I told you that, too. For the longest time, I told you that the Democratic establishment is a house of cards because they're not really representing the popular will of the people. They're representing their donors, and deep down voters know this. So when you have somebody who comes along who really fights for the people, they blow up that whole system. And that's what's happening here. And they are literally nervous and scared when they see the giant following she's amassed and the social media numbers that she has. They're scared of it. And, you know, you want to get some of that? Very simple. Stop taking the corporate money. Stop uh, taking the the big money bundling money. Big money bundling money. (laughs) Well said, Kyle. Stop having those, you know, dinners that are thousands of dollars per plate, and then you raise money that way. Raise in small dollar donations and fight for the policies the people want. And then you'll, and then you'll get massively popular, too. It's not that hard to figure out. next now we are going to talk about Michael Bloomberg the other asshole billionaire who is uh, running for president it's my birthday by the way and the reason I say that is because I just went to my Twitter page to find find a, um, a tweet I made about a study involving Medicare for all, and I saw the balloons. (laughs) I had to be reminded it was my own birthday. Um, Where is it? Where? Here it is. Okay, got it. All right, so Mike Bloomberg is going to talk about Medicare for all. You're going to laugh at him. Let's do it. One of the multiple billionaires who wants to be president is Michael Bloomberg, and he weighed in on the debate about Medicare for all. And as expected, he got every single thing dead wrong. I I think you could never afford that. You're talking about trillions of dollars. Uh, I think you can have Medicare for all for people that are uncovered, because that's a smaller group, and a lot of them are taking care of Medicaid already. I, I think... I I think you could never afford that. You're talking about trillions of dollars. Uh, I think you can have Medicare for all for people that are uncovered, because that's a smaller group, and a lot of them are taking care of Medicaid already, Medicare. Uh, But uh, to replace the entire private system uh, where companies provide health care for their employees, 
would bankrupt us for a very long time. Here's the problem with that. It's just factually wrong. I know that I'm a broken record on this show, and I know a lot of you are probably like, okay, Kyle, we get it, we get it, we get it. But you have to understand something. There are some people who are watching this video who've never even seen a secular talk video before, and this might be their first one. And they don't know these things, and I have to repeat these things because nobody, nobody in corporate media is going to say this stuff. And it's infuriating because we have the facts. We have the reality of the situation, and it should be corrected on the spot every time. I don't care whether you're talking about on NBC, MSNBC, CBS, ABC, CNN, Fox News, whatever outlet you want to talk about. Anytime anybody says, oh, no, we can't afford Medicare for all, it'll bankrupt the country, it's too expensive, how are we going to pay for it? Anytime anybody says that, it should be a Pavlovian response where it's just immediate and they say, oh, that's, that's not true at all. In fact, the reality is the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst found that single-payer health care would save the United States, save the United States, $5.1 trillion over a decade. So, in other words, Right now, people pay private premiums, and you have to pay them every month. Oh, my goodness, I need to make sure I don't, you know, uh, have a lapse in my health insurance. i got to pay it every month. Let's say you pay, like, just going to give rough numbers here, $500 a month for your health insurance. Well, what if I told you you could keep that $500? Private premium, gone. Doesn't exist anymore. But now your taxes get increased $300. You understand the way that works? You save 500 because no more private premium, but now we increase your taxes 300, so you have a net savings of $200 a month. That's Medicare for all. Now people may well, why is it that you know you, you end up saving money? Very simple, because when you have for-profit private health insurance companies, there's a middleman, and the middleman is making a profit. So. If you get rid of the profit motive and you get rid of that unnecessary middleman, the cost is going to go down. This is all very, very, very basic stuff, man. Um, And then there's numbers on what percentage of the money that goes into Medicare goes towards actual care versus what percentage of the money that goes to private health insurance companies goes to actual care. And it's over 90% of the money that goes into Medicare goes towards actual care. And for private health insurance companies, it's something like 70% or thereabouts of the money goes to actual care. So you have all these unnecessary overhead costs and the, and the profit motive, and you got the fucking, uh, you know, bonuses for the executives, and you got all these unnecessary things that shouldn't be there. Single payer just means the government is the single insurer. So you get sick, you get help, and that help comes out of your tax dollars, and you save money in the process, and you cover absolutely everybody. So even if you look at a right-wing study on this issue, the Mercatus Institute, funded by the Koch brothers, libertarian-leaning, they admit Medicare for all would save $2 trillion over a decade. So for somebody to make the argument, oh, my God, we can't afford this, well, no, what we can't afford is what we're doing right now. Because if you think we can't afford Medicare for all, you definitely think we can't afford our current system because it costs more. So the real point is we can't afford not to do Medicare for all. 
Every other developed country has one version or another of a single-payer system. And by the way, they cover everybody and it costs less. We could cut our healthcare costs per capita in half or about in half because we see that's what other developed nations end up paying. So this isn't like he's talking about this issue and he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. He also doesn't know that there's a study from the Commonwealth Fund that put the United States 11th out of 11 when it came to developed countries and their healthcare systems, their respective healthcare systems. 11th out of 11th. That's the Commonwealth Fund, and that's a recent study. Never mind the study that goes back um, all the way to the year, I think, 2000, uh, which was the World Health Organization study, which ruled that the U.S. is 37th in healthcare. But it doesn't matter which study you look at, every study has us as the worst in the developed world or one of the worst in the developed world. Never mind the fact that 32,000 to 45,000 people die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. So this is not a debatable issue, okay? This is not a debatable issue. And I don't know what pisses me off more nowadays. I don't know if it's the people who say these things, like Mike Bloomberg says and like Howard Schultz says about, oh, my God, we can't afford it, it'll bankrupt us, yada, yada. I don't know if that pisses me off more or at the fucking crickets and lack of fact-checking in response to it. Because that, to me, is more pernicious. Because it's, the politicians are always going to be politicians and they're going to you know, give you misleading numbers or they're going to lie or they're just going to be wrong. But the media's one job is to make sure that they're telling the truth and to hold them accountable. And they don't do it. They never do it, ever. So it's infuriating. But every mainstream media outlet should immediately fact-check Anytime somebody makes this claim, and I guarantee you're going to hear this claim multiple times a week throughout the election season. I'm not kidding. Multiple times a week throughout the election season, you will hear this claim being made. And my guess is it will never be fact-checked. And so a lot of people will unfortunately walk away from going, I guess that we can't afford it. Even though, by the way, even with all the propaganda, 70% of the country wants Medicare for all. So I guess to some extent, maybe I'm wrong, and the propaganda is just not working anymore. But... Imagine if people knew all of the information, they would go, oh, wow. They'd probably be as angry as I am about this. And they'd be like, I can't, even, I can't believe we're even, like, anybody would say that with a straight face now, that we can't afford it. Are you kidding me? We can't afford not to have it. So um, Michael Bloomberg, notice something, guys. The two billionaires who are, who are running, Howard Schultz and Michael Bloomberg, one of the things they're putting front and center is, we can't have health, uh, universal health care, and we can't have free college. They're putting that front and center. They're billionaires, and they're scolding regular people saying you can't have basic necessities of life. They're going to get so destroyed, and it's going to be it's, it's going to be legendary. It really is. And final point is, I like how he said, we can have Medicare for all for the people that are uncovered. Perhaps you're not sure what the word all means, Michael. No, Medicare for all means Medicare for all. It's not Medicare for some. It's not Medicare for the uncovered. It's not Medicare for a tiny fraction of the population because people who are middle class who have insurance are underinsured oftentimes, and they have shitty health care. And under your idea, they would continue to get screwed. So it's just shut the fuck up. I hate these guys. They're so, they're so in over their head, and they, they get taken seriously simply because they have a lot of money. That's all it is. They have a lot of money, so people, you know, mainstream media 
since they're part of the elite circle, they treat them with kid gloves, and they act like, well, they must be smart. They have a lot of money. Paris Hilton also has a lot of money, so that says quite a bit right there, too. Okay, next, we are going to John Bolton's comments. Boy, is it a doozy. So when you watch the financial networks or you read the um, financial papers, like Wall Street Journal, for example, Chomsky makes this point all the time, or you watch CNBC or um, Fox Business or Bloomberg, Oftentimes, you get powerful people being too honest. And what they do is they tell you what they're really thinking and what all this stuff is really about. And if you pay attention, you'll see a lot of these little nuggets, these little gems uh, on issues of Wall Street and regulation and taxes and on issues of uh, foreign policy. So here we have a perfect example that John Bolton gets a little bit too comfortable on Fox Business and look at what he ends up saying about Venezuela. We want everybody to know we're, we're looking at all of this very seriously. We don't want any American businesses or investors caught by surprise. They can see what President Trump did yesterday. We're following through on it. Uh, and so if you think of a company like Fico, which is owned by PDVSA, which is the state-run oil company there in Venezuela, we have a lot of those Fico assets right here in the U.S. Is that something, for example, sir, that you're looking at? Yeah, well, we're in conversation with major American companies now that are either in Venezuela we're in the case of Citgo here in the United States. Uh, I think we're trying to get to the same end result here. You know, uh, Venezuela is one of the three countries I call the Troika of Tyranny. It'll make a big difference to the United States economically if we could have American oil companies really invest in and, and produce the oil uh, capabilities in uh, Venezuela. It'd be good for the people of Venezuela. It'd be good for the people of the United States. We both have a lot at stake here making this come out the right way. Just admitted it. The coup in Venezuela is about the oil. Listen, I know that you, uh, in this audience, you're not surprised by this. You already knew this was the case. At least the overwhelming majority of you did. Um, but there are some people who don't know, and they're naive, you know, and, and they really believe the bullshit line that usually comes from Washington, D.C. Now, to not the credit of the Trump administration, but to the something of the Trump administration, they really have dropped a lot of the, you know, the pretext for, that we usually throw out there. Like, oh, we care about freedom and democracy, and, and that's why. I always get mixed up. I don't know if the word is pretext or pretense. I think it's pretext. But they threw out the pretext, slash pretense, slash one of those words is wrong, slash you guys probably know which one is and isn't, and I'm an idiot. Um, but they threw that out, and... You would normally hear people in D.C. going, oh, we care so deeply about these innocent civilians being hurt. We have no choice but to help. That's why we need to do an illegal coup. Okay, well, now they're just saying, like, no, this is uh, about the oil, pretty much about the oil. Mm-hmm. That's what I'd say. You're saying the quiet part loud. 
So what happens is they're too comfortable on the financial networks. They know that most of the people watching are fucking Wall Street executives in the top 1%. And, um, you know, Trish Regan is not going to call him out on it, this, this host. She does, she does rants against fucking social democracy all the time as if she's keeping it real. Um, and notice nobody's like, nobody's shocked by it. Nobody, it's not like, like if I'm the host and they say that, I'm going to have to be like, whoa, what? But they say, and it's like, yeah, of course, we're allowed to. And, and see, in John Bolton's mind, international law doesn't apply to us. Remember, he's a war criminal, part of the Bush administration. You know, we're talking about an administration that waged an offensive war in a country that didn't attack us in Iraq, lied about it. There were no weapons of mass destruction. Um, ended up taking oil from there as well, by the way, and killed minimum 200,000 civilians. And it was just a mess. And... This is, to him, it's just whatever. We get to do what we want. We're above international law. doesn't apply to us. And if you disagree with that, you can go fuck yourself. And you know it's, it's ridiculous because we support 73% of the world's dictatorships, but the argument, at least half the time, about Venezuela is, well, obviously it's just because Maduro is a terrible dictator. That's why we, have to, that's why we support the opposition taking over. If, why wouldn't you stop actively supporting 73% of the world's dictatorships if you care so much on principle against dictators and for democracy? I mean, listen, we're aiding and abetting a genocide in Yemen right this second. Saudi Arabia is doing that genocide. We keep arming them and funding them and holding hands and singing kumbaya with them. And So do you really care about fighting against dictatorships? Well, stop arming one in Saudi Arabia. Stop aiding them in a genocide. I mean, this stuff is... Relatively simple, but of course it's got nothing to do with that. And here you have the moment of honesty where he says, well, it's really about the oil. And I told you, I played the video of Trump. He said it in regards to Libya. He said it in regards to Syria. He said it in regards to Iraq. We should take the oil. That's what Trump said. This was before he was president. Hey, what do you mean? We should go in there and take the oil. So now I have no doubt that his close advisor said to him, we could topple Maduro and we could take the oil. Or at the very least, we can get a very cheap deal to get the oil from... um, Gallardo, who's the person, the opposition who they want to replace Maduro. And, you know, one of the oldest tricks in the, the imperial book is the United States sanctions the shit out of Venezuela. The economy fucking implodes. People are struggling. And then they turn around and act like, ah, all of this is on the, the Venezuelan government. Now, let me be clear. I don't, I'm not defending the Venezuelan government. I don't agree with the Venezuelan government. I have no stake in that. Okay, call it what it is. You can't say these crippling sanctions had no impact. You can't say that like it's all on the Venezuelan government. That's just not true. And it's just so disingenuous. And we do this in Iran, too. We sanction Iran, destroy their economy, literally block humanitarian goods from going in there, including medicine. People die. And then we turn around and go, oh, what a brutal and vicious Iranian uh, regime they are. If you cared about Iranian civilians, you wouldn't be sanctioning fucking medicine from going in there. You know, like this is basic stuff, but it's all it's all a game to them. It, we, there's a geopolitical chessboard and we're making power moves and we want to control markets and jack natural resources. That's what it is. And, you know, because a guy like John Bolton, who's honestly one of the most dangerous men on the fucking planet, you know, because he's the one that's controlling a lot of this stuff and he's the one that's steering the agenda. The other day, he was, given a, he was given some comments to the media and written down on a notepad, it said 5,000 troops to Colombia. 
So now they're actually talking about like a literal boots on the ground invasion of Venezuela. Again, back in the day, all the only line of argument you'd ever hear is we're just doing this for freedom and democracy. And that was bullshit, but that's what they would say. Now you get the mix of half the time. It's because we care about freedom and democracy and Venezuelan civilians. But in moments of honesty, they really tell you what it's about. It's about the fucking oil. So we have a criminal rogue regime in control in this country, and they're violating international law to do an illegal coup, back an illegal coup, and they might even do a ground invasion. So if you support it because Maduro bad, you're a sucker. I don't know what you want me to tell you. I don't know what you want me to tell you. Listen, the only time we should use our military is to defend the country. Defend the country. There's no radical Venezuelan terrorism heading our way. There's no, you know, Maduro. In, we have to attack Maduro over there before he attacks us over here. That's not a thing. We're, we are acting offensively. And just because you might disagree ideologically with the government that we're doing this to, that's no excuse. And again, you are violating international law if that's the case. Now, use the logic that we use against others. Flip that now and put the shoe on the other foot and use it against us. We say, oh, my God, this government, look at this rogue government. They're, they're violating international law willy-nilly. They're ripe for regime change because, obviously, we can't trust them to follow the law. Well, if we use that same logic against us, what should happen? Should fucking Russia do a coup of the U.S. and put Pelosi in power or something and say, like, ah, what are you going to do? We have... You guys were violating international law. You were right for regime change. Can, should Iran do some sort of attack against us? Because, hey, what do you want me to say? You were violating international law all willy-nilly, like nothing mattered. No, because we see the absurdity of that logic whenever you use it against us. But when we do it against others, like we're doing right now in Venezuela, a lot of people just shrug, man. Eh, what are you going to do? Eh, Maduro's a bad guy anyway. You're responsible for what you do. You're not responsible for what others do. Here's something we do. Back 73% of the world's dictatorships. If you really care about fighting against dictatorships, then just stop supporting 73% of the world's dictatorships. Not that hard. That's what you would do. But this isn't about that. And now you know, and John Bolton just fucking said it on TV, so don't be an idiot. Don't pretend like that's not the case. Don't act like this has anything to do with human rights, freedom, justice, democracy. It's got nothing to do with any of that. And you need to know it because that's what it is. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, Debbie Wasserman Schultz gives us some weasel words on Medicare for All. And then we have some amazing priorities among uh, Republicans in D.C. They're going after the estate tax. I'm going to give you some amazing facts about the estate tax that will blow your mind. Stay right there.
Alright, I'm back, bitch. I had to eat a birthday breakfast burrito there. <clears throat> it was necessary. <clears throat> I was starving. Didn't get to eat anything before the show. Delicious. Anyway, all right, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, let me set this up for you. We're going to talk about Medicare for All for the 97,000th time today. Um, but here, let's do it. i got to tell you about uh, Kamala, too. So Kamala Harris had a CNN town hall the other night, and her best moment in that town hall was on the issue of Medicare for All. So she was asked about the issue of health care, and she said very simply, um, we need a Medicare for All system. It was flat. There, were no, there was no hedging. There were no caveats. It was just, yeah, we need Medicare for All. Um, and honestly, that's not what I was expecting from Kamala. Now, on other issues, there were a lot of platitudes and cliches, and you know, I was live tweeting this uh, town hall event, and my general takeaway is that overall, she's very Obama-esque or Bill Clinton-esque at a time when we need, a, you know, a radical. Um, but her best answer was definitely on Medicare for All. Second best answer was on uh, gun reform, where she said, "I'd lock every uh, every politician in a room and show them autopsy photos of the kids who were massacred at Sandy Hook." I thought that was a strong answer, and she's for basic gun reforms, but. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Afterwards, she was uh, afterwards she backpedaled from her support of Medicare for All. Why? Because Jake Tapper did a, a gotcha question right after uh, he asked about Medicare for All. He said, "Well, hold on now. What if somebody likes their private insurance? Would you take away their private insurance?" And her response was basically like, "Yeah, I would," <laughs> which is kind of badass. But the next day, she comes out there, oh, did I say that? What I meant to say was the sun was in my eyes. What had happened was blah, 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 blah. Now, here's why Jake Tapper's question was a gotcha question, and it actually totally wasn't fair, and the framing was misleading. He was saying that under Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, it abolishes uh, private health insurance. So it's actually not true. Um, there are a million different ways to do uh, Medicare for All systems or single-payer systems, but... The way that's generally supported among lefties in the U.S. is to have Medicare for All as the default, and then if somebody wants supplemental private insurance, they can get it. But the default is Medicare for All. Now, Kamala Harris, I think that she doesn't really know much about Medicare for All, to be honest. I think that she understands that politically she can't not support it and win the Democratic primary, so she has to support it, so she's saying she supports it. But her answer was just like a little weird. Like what she should have said in response to Jake Tapper's question was, Jake, that's a little bit of a misleading framing because the reality is under Bernie's Medicare for All bill, you still have private, the private insurance industry still exists, but it's supplemental care. And it becomes a much smaller percentage of the, of the insurance market. And the single payer system, the default is Medicare for All and everybody's covered. So that's what she should have said. She didn't say it. She kind of walked into Jake, T Trapper, Jake, Trapper, Jake Tapper's trap and said like, yeah, abolish it. Um, and then she had to backpedal from that. Now, fast forward to a couple days later, Debbie Wasserman Schultz goes on CNN to defend Kamala Harris on this point. But you're going to notice something here, and this is why we're doing this segment. You're going to notice a lot of weasel words used by Debbie Wasserman Schultz. I'm here to explain to you and to train you to fine-tune your bullshit meter. Because there's a lot of bullshit weasel words used by Democratic politicians where they try to trick you into thinking that they agree with you 
on very important key crucial issues to the left when they really don't. They believe in watered down versions of those ideas that are nowhere near the original idea. Okay? So here's Debbie Wasserman Schultz defending Kamala Harris on this point, doing a head fake as if she supports Medicare for all, but I'll explain how she doesn't. And I'll break it down for you as to what Debbie's doing here, but also what's so bullshit about the CNN host framing as well. Check it out. Um, Congresswoman, it's so great to have you here, and, and is, you're seeing so many of these candidates from your party talking about Medicare for All as the position that was really popularized by Bernie Sanders in the last cycle. Um, they're, they're making these promises, but watching Senator Harris and her campaign now broadening out her openness to health care reform that doesn't necessarily eliminate private insurance companies, do you worry that... This is a sign that Democrats might be opening themselves up to some really big promises that they can't realistically keep? No, on the contrary. I, I, I think you'll see, number one, uh, we'll have a historic number of, of candidates who will compete for the Democratic nomination to get rid of you know, the, the most erratic uh, prevaricator that we've ever had in the White House. And you'll see each and every one of them be for this litmus test. And that is that every one of them will be for making sure that we can expand access to quality, affordable health care to as many people as we can. Everyone, if that's possible. And you'll see, I think, different candidates take the position that there are multiple pathways to getting there and that we need to do that as, uh, as soon as and as comprehensively as possible. And you'll also see, much equally as importantly, them defend the Affordable Care Act and the 20 million plus individuals in America who have quality affordable health care now that didn't before and prevent Donald Trump from taking that away from them. Pro promising, more, promising access to more affordable health care is one thing. Promising Medicare for all and promising to get rid of private insurers, which so much of the system is currently based on, is, is another thing. Are they over-promising by talking about a change that is that large that seems very uh, difficult to achieve? See, I think we have to look past the surface-level uh, name for it. The moniker of what you call the concept, which we are all fully embracing, is that we Healthcare is a right and should not be treated as a privilege that is only available to those who can afford it. That is what Democrats are for. That's what you'll see every Democratic presidential candidate before. And like you would expect, they will take different approaches to getting there. But, you know, the black and white choice of are you or are you not for Medicare for all, we are all for, and that's the, that's the litmus test that there should be that I think every one of them will meet. We are all for making sure that everyone in America can get access to quality, affordable health care, and we need to all move forward together to ensure that that happens. Okay, so listen, if you are not a political junkie who's been following these things for years, you can be forgiven for thinking, I don't see what the problem is there. I don't see what she said that was wrong. I don't see what she said that was misleading. It seems very straightforward. I'm going to walk you through it. So, very rarely... Do you hear Democratic politicians, with the exception of Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, some of the other Justice Democrats, maybe Tulsi Gabbard, Elizabeth Warren, very rarely do you hear a Democratic politician say, I support single-payer health care, or I support Medicare for all, full stop. 
That's rare. What they do say is what you just heard from Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Namely, well, really what's important is what we all agree to is that we expand access to quality, affordable care. Why did she choose those words specifically? Expand access, quality, affordable care. Why are you adding those words in there? Well, the answer is very simple. Those are weasel words that allow you to get out of, if, if when we get to that bridge and it's time to cross it to fight for Medicare for all, the fact that she was using this phrasing all along allows her to wiggle out of it and say, I never said I was going to go for that original Medicare for all bill. Because quality, affordable care means what? Well, we got to lower the cost. Well, what do you mean, but lower the cost in what sense? Lower the cost as in totally change the system and move towards a Medicare for all system where the government's the single insurer? or lower the cost and keep the framework of the system the same and lower the cost in terms of what you're paying to your private health insurer. Quality, affordable care, not free at the point of service. See, they can say that. She can say, I want free at the point of service, Medicare for all. She doesn't say that. Bernie says free at the point of service. Um, AOC says free at the point of service. Dave Wasserman Schultz did not. Quality, affordable care, expand access. What do you mean expand access? Well, this, again, a weasel word. We, uh, the Democrats all want you to have access to health care. Everybody has access to health care. Everybody could go to the emergency room and get health care. That's access to health care. But does that mean you're not going to go bankrupt? No, you can still go bankrupt because we have a system where medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcy. So instead of saying I'm for single payer or I'm for Medicare for all, I'm for free at the point of service health care, it's we need to expand access to quality, affordable care. Weasel words to the nth degree. Then notice, quick transition to, and she tries to slip it in there as if it's not even a transition. But ultimately, the main thing is we all agree to defend the Affordable Care Act. Wait, what? No. Defending the Affordable Care Act is light years different from pushing for a Medicare for all system. Under the Affordable Care Act, we still have, at the low number, it was 20 million people who were uninsured. High number, 29 million now, but that's because Trump has been doing executive orders against it and screwing it over nine ways to Sunday. But even best case scenario, it was 20 million people still uninsured, costs still rising. It had good provisions. Of course it did. You can stay on your parents' health, care, health insurance until you're 26 years old. You know, you can um, it mandates that health insurance companies have to spend more of their money on actual care and not just on overhead costs, protections for pre-existing conditions, so on and so forth, Medicaid expansion. It has good provisions. But defending the Affordable Care Act is, is way short of pushing for Medicare for all. And she lowers the bar casually to, well, we all agree we're going to defend the Affordable Care Act. That's the important thing. Um, and then finally you hear, well, we all, it, we all have different paths to get to the same conclusion. No, 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 no. See, you have to understand what she means when she says that. Now, when I say, hey, I'll take any version of a single-payer system, what I'm saying is, hey, do you want the French system or do you want the UK system? So in other words, do you want public funding of public institutions? That's the UK system. Or do you want public funding, tax money, to private institutions? That's the French system. That's a debate to be had about what kind of single-payer system do you want because they're both single-payer systems, both fully funded by tax dollars. When she says that we different paths to the same conclusion, what she means is, and I know this because I've seen the bills proposed by the Democrats, what she means is, well, hey, some people want the Medicare for All system, Bernie's bill. Some people want Medicare expansion, which is lower the age to get into Medicare to 55. Some people want a public option, 
which is not Medicare for all at all. So that's what she means when she says it. They come up with all these goofy half-measure ideas to split the difference between Medicare for all and the current system. And then when she says, well, we're all trying a different path to get to the same place, what she means is any of those healthcare reforms I'll take. Medicare, Medicare expansion, public option, that's fine. And what we're here to say is, no, that's not fine. Now, finally, I want to say this. So those are her weasel words. And you'll notice this. If you follow politics closely, you'll see this. I'll give you one more example of weasel words. It's the classic example. Hillary Clinton used to say during the 2016 uh, election, we need to get dark, unaccountable money out of politics. Now, when you hear that, when most people hear that, they go, yeah, I agree with that. That makes sense. Let's get dark, unaccountable money out of politics. Ask yourself, why didn't she just say, we have to get money out of politics? Why did she add the words dark and unaccountable? The answer is simple. Because when you say get dark, unaccountable money out of politics, what that means is, I'm in favor of more transparency. So I don't want to stop the bribery. I want to pass a law that mandates that they have to disclose who the donors to the politicians are. So I don't want to stop the bribery. I just want everybody to know who's bribing the politicians. That's what they mean. Get the dark money out of politics. means light money is fine. Get the, if, if we know who's buying the politicians, totally fine. Get the unaccountable money. More transparency. Let's see who's buying the politicians. There's a reason she doesn't say get money out of politics, because she doesn't support getting money out of politics, full stop. She only supports more transparency so you know who's buying the politicians. All, if you listen closely, they will always tell you what they really believe. And what they really believe is not what you really believe. They want to try to make you think they believe what you really believe, getting money out of politics, but they don't. So that's why they have to throw in those weasel words. Okay, now, final point is the CNN host. In a system that's functioning and in a system that makes sense, you'd have people in the media being adversarial to centers of power. So what that means is people in the media should be ruthlessly questioning the current system. The health insurance companies, they're making billions of dollars. At the same time, we have damn near 30 million people uninsured, tens of thousands of people dying because they don't have um, health care. We have all these problems. We have a medical bankruptcy is one of the top causes of bankruptcy. We, I mean, in a system that made sense, the media would be questioning that endlessly, like I did with the stories that we covered on the last uh, show where you had a woman being arrested for fraud because she let a, a student use her health care because he needed help. You had a kid almost die because a health insurance company changed insulin and then didn't give them the option. So that a, a real journalist questions those things, questions the power centers. Notice what the CNN host does here. The framing of her question is to defend the status quo. She says, well, listen, you guys are pushing for Medicare for all. Why, are, why do you think you guys are maybe doing promises that you can't keep? So instead of questioning the powers that be, you're questioning the people who are fighting the powers that be, who want to get away from this fucked up system and help people with a Medicare for all system and do the right thing. So they, it's, she flipped her responsibility. Her real responsibility is hold people in power accountable. Nobody in this country is more powerful than the big pharma lobby, than the for-profit health insurance lobby, than the, than the politicians who are bought by those lobbies. But instead of questioning them, she flips it and she questions the one position which is actually speaking truth to power and trying to take those powerful lobbies on. 
So inverted her responsibility, and you'll see this all the time. Everything is framed from the perspective of the establishment. Aren't you being unrealistic by saying we should have Medicare for all? I think you're being unrealistic. You know, aren't you being pie in the sky and an anti-war hippie for saying we shouldn't back an illegal coup in Venezuela? I think you're being pie in the sky and like a hippie. So they invert their responsibility. They defend the powerful as opposed to taking on the powerful. And by the way, I shouldn't be complaining because this is why people watch our show and this is why there's a rise of new media and this is why people hate CNN. Okay, next. <clears throat> Let me give you the amazing priorities among Republicans in D.C. You're going to get a kick out of this. So if you were wondering what... Ooh, hold on. i got to change my little um, thingy in the background here. Okay, we're better. I'm going to start over on that one. All right, my bad. Here we go. <clears throat> so if you were wondering what the priorities are among Republicans in Washington, D.C., well, um, wonder no more because I have an amazing story that lays it out perfectly. Republican senators want to repeal the estate tax on the wealthiest families and stiff federal contractors seeking back pay. That one headline says it all. Says it all. All of it. All of it. So the estate tax, for those of you who don't know, as of 2017, it only applied to individuals with $5.49 million or more or couples with $10.98 million or more. That was 2017. Then Trump's GOP tax bill passed. Now, $11 million, there's no estate tax unless you're above the $11 million line. Okay. Understand that this, this impacts just 0.1%, I think, of, of families in the U.S. So when they try to, they do this marketing trick where they say, oh, my God, it's the death tax, not the estate tax, the death tax. Why are they calling it the death tax? Because everybody dies, and they're trying to, fool working class people into thinking that it's going to impact them and they can't pass along their money to their kids. But that's just not true. You have to have over $11 million to be taxed on that money. So it really only applies to people with estates, which is why it's called the estate tax. So they do this weaselly trick. Now, just so you know who this impacts, take a look. Warren Gunnels is um, Bernie Sanders' policy advisor. He's honestly one of the most underrated lefties in the country. This guy's awesome, okay? And he always does stuff like this. He gives you fascinating and relevant information, and he crafts brilliant policies. But take a look at who the estate tax repeal helps. Ending the estate tax would give a tax break of up to $63.6 billion for the Walton family, the owners of Walmart, $39.1 billion for the Koch brothers, $27.8 billion for the Mars Candy Bar family. $13.4 billion for the Cox Cable family. Zero dollars for for more than 99.8% of Americans. 
So this one story should tell you everything you need to know about Republican priorities. The Republicans in Washington, D.C. do not give a fuck about you. It's very simple. They don't care about you. They are trying to stiff federal contractors seeking back pay because of the shutdown, stiff regular working people, while at the same time handing tens of billions of dollars over to the Walton family, the Koch brothers, among others, who are massively wealthy, do not need that money, but they'd rather give billions of dollars in tax breaks to them, the top 0.01%, than give federal contractors back pay. This story is one of those stories, it doesn't require much commentary from me, because it just speaks for itself, and now you know. Okay. Now we go to Rick Scott, who is uh, talking about Venezuela, Florida senator now. And he's going to make a point that I was making as a literal joke a few days ago. This was an actual laugh out loud joke for me to the point where I tweeted it and was giggling as I did so. So Rick Scott is a massively corrupt U.S. senator now from Florida, and he weighed in on what's happening in Venezuela, uh, because who knows better about Venezuela than Rick Scott, and he said something terrifyingly stupid. Venezuela's disputed president, Nicolas Maduro, now saying he is willing to negotiate with the opposition to end the growing crisis there, but he's ruling out new elections. Florida Senator Rick Scott is on the Homeland Security Committee. Senator, thank you for coming back on the program this morning. So how should the U.S. respond to the growing crisis there? We have got to do everything possible to put pressure on Maduro to step aside. I've been speaking to the President about this. I talked to the Interim President Juan Guaido this week. Uh, met with Venezuelan leaders down in Miami uh, this week. We've got to do everything we can, just keep the pressure on. Now's the time to get rid of Maduro. I mean, this, the, what, what he has done to just everybody in that country is despicable. Uh, you know, these Democrats talk about socialism. That's exactly what Maduro's done, and it's been horrible uh, for parents wanting to have a child, not worried whether they're going to have food or medicine. Um, it's just horrible what's happened. We've got to do everything we can to put, put pressure on Maduro. Uh, these, these people, these Democrats have said this is a coup. No, this is fighting for democracy and freedom. It's fighting against socialism. It's fighting to do the best thing for Venezuela. To what extent do you want us to do everything we can to get involved? I think we got we got to put everything on the table. Which includes I think it, what, Senator? Well, I, th- I think we've, we've got to look at every option, military options, every option possible. I think the more Madero believes we're, com- we're committed, I want to thank President Trump for listening to all sides uh, by, by going out there and, uh, you know, uh, talking to Guaido, uh, meeting with uh, congressional leaders, uh, listening to what I had to say or Marco Rubio or Marius Blard. Um, but I, we also, we all have to go ahead and declare them a state sponsor of terrorism. They are. You want to declare them a state sponsor of terrorism. You want to declare Venezuela a state sponsor of terrorism. 
why would you say that? Why would you undermine every other point you made? Not that those other points were strong in the first place. They're not. They're terribly weak and dumb. But why would you just undercut any semblance, any little fucking sand speck of, of, of truth you had in what you were saying is now totally gone? Because you just said Venezuela should be on the state sponsor of terrorism list. I was joking about this the day that it was clear that we were going to back an illegal coup in Venezuela. I tweeted, um, radical Venezuelan terrorism. Say it with me, folks. Radical Venezuelan terrorism. I also tweeted, um, we have to attack Maduro over there before he attacks us over here. Folks, we got to go after Maduro or next thing you know, he'll be invading Arkansas. Do we want to see Maduro on on the shores of Arkansas? Shores of Arkansas. Does Arkansas have shores? <laughs> it's either, I don't think it does, but it's, I think it's one above the states that are on the, that are on the water. Let me see. This is going to bother me. Yeah, that's right. It's one above a state that's on the water. So you have Louisiana below it, and then you have Arkansas on top of it. Yeah. So there are no shores of Arkansas, of course. <laughs> Folks. We need to act now, or Maduro will be on the shores of Louisiana. It'll be tremendously sad. Many, many people are saying this. We have to attack there. We don't want the proof we need to come in the form of a mushroom cloud, Maduro's mushroom cloud. Even people on the right are fighting back against this kind of dumb propaganda. I'm serious. Even people on the right. Because now there's been a rise on the right of what's called paleoconservatives. So neocons have been running the Republican Party and now have tried to latch on to the Democratic Party as well. But they've been running the Republican Party and they're in favor of a war everywhere. Name a place, they want to fight a war there. That's not a popular position. And Pat Buchanan was the original paleocon where he wants to, like he's very conservative. And, but at the same time, he supports some trade restrictions. Um, so he's kind of pro-protectionism, but also just against offensive wars. Um, and so now you see a lot of people on the right who are noticing like, oh shit, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't vote for Trump so that he can go fucking topple countries that aren't getting along with U.S. oil companies. I didn't do that. And listen, this shows you, look at how, how easily, the ease with which they lie is stunning. I mean, you just heard him. He just said it as if it was just obvious. Like, yeah, put him on the state sponsor of terrorism. What? Uh, There is less than no evidence for that. In fact, honestly, keeping it totally real, you're acting more like terrorists right now. Terrorism is defined as uh, violence against civilians, innocent civilians, for political or religious reasons. You guys have no, you're not hesitating for a second to say military options on the table. Military option? How many innocent people would die because you want to topple a government because he's not playing ball with oil companies. And by the way, that's exactly what it's about. That's what John Bolton said on uh, Fox Business Network. He was like, yeah, it's really about the oil. That's why we're doing this. They have the largest oil reserves in the world, Venezuela does. That's obviously what this is about. We don't care about freedom and democracy like, like Rick Scott just said. You guys know it. 73% of the world's dictatorships we support. As we back Saudi Arabia, as they do a fucking genocide, and as they are killing, uh, you know, female activists who just want the right to drive. We're backing that terrible regime, and then we pretend like we have a principled stance to be pro-democracy. 
Fuck off. It's unbelievable. But there you have it. They've become a living parody. Uh, the joke I made was radical Venezuelan terrorism. Maduro, uh, you know, we have to attack Maduro over there before he attacks us over here. That's a joke I made. And now they're saying it seriously and expecting anybody to take it at face value and go, yeah, that's totally true. Listen, even if you're somebody who's been a Republican this, your entire life, it ain't too late to, late to get out, son. Because this is how much they are insulting your intelligence when he says something like this. Does Rick Scott actually believe Maduro and, and Venezuelans are doing terrorism? Does he actually believe that? The answer is no. The answer is no. So he's able to lie to you and keep a straight face on, and he cranks the absurdity of the lie. That absurdity meter is, is, is broken. He cranked it up so high, he broke it. And you're, you're supposed to sit there and just take it like a sucker. You know better than that. Okay. All right, this next one is a little bit of an old school secular talk clip. The old school listeners will respect the shit out of this one. I'll tell you that. So Sarah Huckabee Sanders the White House press secretary, um, spoke to the Christian Broadcasting Network. And boy, oh boy, did she decide to take after her father in this interview. Now, you'll notice the graphic I put over my left shoulder here. That's a real painting, by the way. Somebody actually made that and thought like, yeah, Representing reality. God is working through Trump. Jesus is working through Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, it's stunning that there are people who believe that, but there are. Um, one of those people, in fact, is Sarah Huckabee Sanders. So in the interview with the Christian Broadcasting Network, she said, and I quote, I think God calls all of us to fill different roles at different times, and I think that he wanted Donald Trump to become president. And that's why he's there. And I think he has done a tremendous job in supporting a lot of the things that people of faith really care about. God chose Donald Trump to be president. So this is, um, this is not fiction. This is real life here. This could have been in a documentary, according to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. That's, that's, what, that's what's going on. Now, uh, to be fair, I don't know if she really believes it or if she's just stroking her boss's ego. But there's a decent chance she believes it because look at who her dad is. Her dad, without question, is a theocrat and believes that he's doing God's work on this earth. In fact, Mike Huckabee once said, this is not a joke, we should get rid of the Bill of Rights and replace it with the Bible, replace it with the Ten Commandments. These are the same people who would rail against Iran or rail against uh, Muslim fundamentalists because of uh, Sharia law. We don't want religion taking over politics, unless, of course, it's our religion, in which case we think it's awesome. 
listen, if that's who your God chose to be president, your God is dumb as a motherfucker. Seriously. Because, I mean, just to give a few examples here, just to give a few facts, 7 million people have lost their health insurance under the Trump administration as a direct result of his executive orders, which have shivved Obamacare on the side. Now, Obamacare was not the best reform. We know Medicare for all is, but Obamacare was a step in the right direction. He is trying to destroy Obamacare, and in the process, 7 million people lost their health insurance. Is that a policy that Jesus Christ would support? Would he support any action which would take health insurance away from 7 million people? Would he do that? I would guess not. I would guess not. Would Jesus Christ increase drone strikes 432% as Donald Trump has done and massively tick up the number of civilian deaths and change the rules of engagement, by the way, to make it so that you care less about civilians? Is that something Jesus Christ would do? Would Jesus Christ pass a tax bill that guts the estate tax and makes it so that rich people get a massive tax break and the only tax breaks that, appear, uh, that, ha- that go to regular folks expire, but the ones on the rich and corporations are permanent. Is that a bill that Jesus would sign? Is that something Jesus would be in favor of? Would Jesus be in favor of a family separation policy at the border? Would Jesus, be in favor- would Jesus even be in favor of borders? <laughs> Serious question. Would he? I mean, my guess is no. Every- everything that's in the Bible about immigrants, a.k.a. sojourners in the Bible, it's- all of it is hippy-dippy, lovey-dovey shit, where he's like, oh, treat them like your brother, allow them in your house, et cetera, et cetera. So, and the list goes on and on, man. I mean, the number of Republican policies that are in, that are in direct contravention of Jesus' message, that list is endless. What, look at what they've done with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They've gutted the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which re- returned $12 billion to defrauded Americans. Now, Jesus went after the money changers, as they called them. That's the modern-day equivalent of Wall Street. Trump serves Wall Street. Yeah, Goldman Sachs all throughout his administration. The idea that they've deluded themselves to the point where they think that they're hippy-dippy God, Jesus in most of his moods in the New Testament, that that guy would support Trump. You know, hey, maybe, maybe, if your God is real, which he's not, but if he was real, maybe he would have supported a, maybe a, Jewish candidate who cares deeply about the poor and wants to end war. If only we had a candidate like that who had run in 2016. If only. All right, now we're going to make fun of Chris Saliza. He's one of my favorite new targets because he should be a target and he just kind of skates under the radar when he shouldn't. So CNN tweeted this next short video that you're about to watch and they did it with this caption. Chris Eliza, who's this guy, explains why he and uh, CNN forecasters have Senator Kamala Harris at the top of their list 
of the top 10 people most likely to become the Democratic presidential nominee. Now, Crystal is a, I don't know how he has a job, I just don't, because half the time he says really stupid shit that's not true, and the other half the time he says the most banal, obvious shit you've ever heard. So how does he have a job? I don't know. He has to know somebody who knows somebody. Definitely a nepotism case or something going on here. But here he is. Again, the whole purpose of this clip that you're about to watch is he's explaining why him and the other expert CNN forecasters have Kamala Harris at number one to be the Democratic primary winner. Take a look. Does she stand up? I think it'll double in size at least, but in in two months' time. How does she stand up? Harry Anton and I do rankings every month of the top ten folks at this moment most likely to become the nominee. We've had Kamala Harris number one for the last two or three months for a lot of what Dana just talked about. Look, if you read that speech or watched it, uh, she is setting up. She is the anti-Trump, right? He's not mentioned by name in the speech. He's mentioned sort of by reference. She's not the president, right? But in everything, from the fact that she is an Indian-American and African-American woman as a con- con- in, her, in her 50s, contrasted to a 70-plus-year-old white male, to her focus on, you know, we need to be strong together. It's not us versus them. Talking on everything, health care, climate. Uh, she talks about the need for the freedom of the press. A lot of candidates will do this who are running on the Democratic side. I thought one other thing that's worth noting in, in um, contrast to Trump or with Trump in mind she, she does say truth a lot in there, and we played that. She also uses the word fight or fighter a lot, and I think you're going to see Kirsten Gillibrand from New York doing a lot of this, which is the Democratic Party is angry. Yeah, they want someone to stand up to Donald Trump in a real way, and maybe not Michael Avenatti, but something sort of, you know, near-ish that. So I think totally you're going to see a lot of willingness to, to be that fighter. Okay, what you just said is not connected at all to what we were told it was going to be. The whole purpose of that clip was Chris Eliza explains why he and uh, CNN forecasters have Kamala Harris at the top of their list of the top 10 people most likely to become the Democratic presidential nominee. You didn't give a single data point. Not one. Not one. So here's what annoys me. What annoys me is how disingenuous they are. Because as they are actively trying to shape public opinion on the race, they pretend like us, we're just calling balls and strikes. No, 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 the only reason I'm saying Kamala Harris is the favorite is because Kamala Harris is the favorite. The fuck, no, that's not true. There's not, there's not a single poll where she's number one. Not a single one. Now, if you want to come up with some sort of highfalutin argument to say, that, well, that doesn't matter, but here's why I think she is number one, fine, you could do that. But you have to actually make points that lead to that conclusion. You didn't do that at all. Here's what he said. She's the anti-Trump. Okay, but how? Explain what that means exactly. You could argue that every single Democratic candidate is the anti-Trump, simply by virtue of the fact that they're running against Donald Trump for president. They want to be the nominee against Donald Trump for president. Well, her policies are the opposite. Yeah, uh, every Democratic candidate, to one extent or another, is going to be running on the opposite policies of Donald Trump. So what do you, that doesn't mean anything. You're just saying words, but there's no meaning attached to it. Oh, she's number one because she's the anti-Trump. What? That could apply to all of them. Um, well, she's Indian-American and African-American, and so the identity. Shot, uh, color me surprised. Donald Tr- uh, or uh, CNN is, is using identity politics. Listen, that's not in and of itself an argument. You're putting it front and center. 
And I warned you they were going to do this. They were going to make it so that have an establishment-approved candidate that if and when the left criticizes her on policy grounds, they give themselves an out to turn around and go, well, she's a woman of color. Maybe that's the real reason you're criticizing her. Not on the policy stuff, but maybe you just don't like the women of color. That's the second point he makes. Oh, we think that uh, she's a favorite because she's, um, she's a woman of color. But that's like your opinion, though. Like, you're not, none of this is connected to any data. Then he says, this is the, the uh, most hilarious one. Well, you know, if you'll notice, when she talks, she says, she says we need to be strong together. The opposite of Trump. Yeah, if only there was some campaign where, I don't know, maybe their slogan was stronger together and we could see what happened empirically in that campaign when they ran on that message of vague-ass platitudes and cliches. Oh, that's right. We had Hillary Clinton, and she lost. And you're using the fact that Kamala Harris, in a way that's like Hillary Clinton's old slogans, you're using that as a reason why Kamala Harris is number one. How do you have a job? You suck at your job, Chris Eliza. Honestly, I could come up with stronger arguments to make Kamala Harris the front runner, even though she's not, but I could feed a more convincing line of bullshit than you could. It's so sad. And then finally he goes, well, she says truth a lot. So what? What does that mean? doesn't mean anything. What the fuck is wrong with you? Did you see her launch video? We covered it on this show. Uh, Kamala Harris's launch video. It was like, truth, unity, justice, democracy. These aren't just words. Well, actually, unless you're about to directly, specifically tie them to policies that you're going to implement, they are just words. That's exactly what they are. Unless you say, um, you know, um, justice, that means getting everybody in the country health care and implementing a Medicare for all system. Unless you tied it directly to that, then yeah, those are just words. What are you doing? What are you doing? You're running a, can- a, a, a campaign from 1992. Stop it. And as she's running this campaign, CNN is actively trying to shape public opinion in her favor as they pretend like they're calling balls and strikes. Listen, if you're doing one of these segments and you say Biden is the front runner, you know what? Fair enough, because at least there's some polls that have him as the front runner. Now, the reality is when you dive into the methodology of those polls, oftentimes they oversample older Democrats and they don't sample enough young people, and they don't sample enough independents. So it's misleading. Those polls are a little misleading. But hey, at least you have a poll, a data point in your favor if you pick Biden. If you pick Bernie, well, virtually every other poll has Bernie at number one. Makes perfect sense. But what they're doing is he's actively picking somebody who's not polling well because they're establishment approved, and then trying to shape public opinion to make people think, oh, okay, she's the leader and I'll support her because of that. And as he shapes opinion, he tries to pretend like me, I'm just calling balls and strikes. I'm just an objective forecaster. No, you're not. You're an asshole with an establishment approved opinion and I have no idea how you have a job. Actually, I just answered my own question. You have a job, you have a job because your opinion always happens to line up with the establishment as you pretend like it's objective.
Let's talk about war, bitch. War. Huh. Yeah. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. All right, looks like we finally have some resistance going on against Trump's policies. Take a look. Bipartisan group of lawmakers moved to stall Trump withdrawal of troops from Syria and South Korea. A bipartisan group of eight House lawmakers on Wednesday introduced two bills to make it more difficult for the Trump administration to withdraw troops from Syria and South Korea. The bills introduced by freshman representatives Tom Malinowski, a disgrace to the skis, and uh, Van Taylor would limit the funds the administration may use to pull troops from the countries. Democrat representatives Andy Kim, Jimmy Panetta, and Max Rose also backed the bills, as do Republican representatives Mike Gallagher, Elise Stefanik, and Will Hurd. Kim, Gallagher, and Stefanik all serve on the House Armed Services Committee. The, bill, the first bill, titled the Responsible Withdrawal, Responsible Withdrawal from Syria Act, prohibits the use of Pentagon funds to draw down active duty troop presence in Syria below 1,500. This is the saddest thing I've ever read in my life. So understand something. In the case of Syria, there was no congressional approval in the first place. So we are there illegally. It is unconstitutional that we still have troops in Syria. Instead of Congress saying, okay, we're going to use our authority to make sure you follow the Constitution and pull out of Syria, they didn't approve it in the first place, but now these bipartisan lawmakers have gotten together and, sa- and said, we need to resist Trump. How are we going to resist him? I got an idea. We could resist him while also pleasing our uh, corporate donors and our defense contractor donors, and we could, pass- we could use- create a bill that says, how dare you withdraw? No, you have to keep troops there. Responsible withdrawal. See, this is the new way they gaslight you. Me? No, of course I'm for getting out of these countries that we're all over the fucking world right now with our military. But we got to be responsible in how we do it. They say this about Afghanistan. We've been there 17 fucking years. 17 years. 18 years, actually. I'm wrong. 18. And we're supposed to think like, hmm. You got to be responsible. You can't just leave really quickly. We've been there 18 years. The fuck do you mean? What do you mean? How long is okay? We have to wait till 21? What's wrong with you? God damn it. So, I hate all these lawmakers with a burning passion. Because it, they're trying to score cheap political points by resisting against Trump. See, look at us. We're bipartisan. I got news for you. Bipartisanship is not, by definition, good. I know mainstream media wants you to believe that, but that's not true. Oftentimes, they... Both parties work together to screw you, like they do with Wall Street deregulation, for example. Here's another example of it. Oh, uh, we're working together in a bipartisan, oh, bipartisanship, in a bipartisan way in order to stay at war longer. So the one area where Trump makes a little bit of sense, you're like, I disagree on that one. That one thing that you're doing that's positive, Don, I'm against that. What a broken, disgusting system, man. And this is how you know the military-industrial complex runs the place. Because, like I said, they didn't even approve us going into Syria in the first place. So this, our being there is illegal and unconstitutional and against international law. But instead of flexing your authority to say, you better get out, man, that you're not allowed to be there. 
They're flexing their authority to say, well, you better stay. And I guarantee you, none of these politicians, guaranteed, they don't know anything about what's happening in Syria. They don't know anything. They don't know anything about the different rebel faction groups. They don't know anything about the fact that 60% of the rebels are uh, Islamist extremists, according to a think tank study from a few years ago. They don't know uh, anything about the Free Syrian Army. They don't know anything about the geopolitical ba- uh, breakdown. They don't know how we have Pentagon-backed rebels fighting CIA-backed rebels, which the LA Times reported on two years ago. They don't know how it's a giant quagmire and a clusterfuck. They don't know. They don't know. They just don't know. They forgot the question, but the answer is more war because the answer is always more war because that's the way our system works. That's the way our government functions. As our infrastructure gets a grade of D+, as they don't have clean water in Flint, Michigan, as 76% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, they're like, quick, spend more tax money to stay in an illegal war because resist! We're resisting the president. Aren't we so great? And it's bipartisan. So the media will now nut all over itself and act like these guys are heroes and they're the dumbest fucking people in the country. Whoa! Huh. Yeah, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing again. Whoa! <laughs> Let's play that song. War song. That's now stuck in my mind, if you can't tell. This is the hippie anthem from back in the day. results for the White House. This is in the Independent they're reporting this. A majority of Americans said they would definitely not vote for Donald Trump in the next presidential election, according to a new poll. 56% of respondents in the Washington Post-ABC News survey said they would definitely not vote for Mr. Trump if he secures a Republican nomination. Double the number, 28%, who say they definitely would vote for him. Wow. It's only 28 that said they would vote for him. Among women... Almost a third, 64%, said they will not countenance support for Mr. Trump compared to just under half, 48% of men. 59% of independent voters who do not align with Democrats or Republicans also ruled out supporting a second term for the 72-year-old White House incumbent. Um, Wow, 59% of independents, Jesus. The results compare unfavorably with Barack Obama during his first term. Across six polls, the former president never had more then 46% of respondents say they would refuse to vote for him. Holy shit, man. That's a huge difference. That's a 10-point difference. 46% to 56%. I just noticed I keep forgetting to change my graphics behind me. Anyway, we're in the process of doing it now. Boom. That's a good graphic. Ugh. Ugh, Fucking little mouth hole. Gross. Anyway. um, Barack Obama, 46% said I'm not going to vote for him. With Trump, it's 
including an insane number of independents, an insane number of women. I mean, listen, he's in trouble. you got to call it what it is. Now, here's the word of warning is this, though. Donald Trump's base is 100% going to go out for him and go out for him strong. And turnout is going to be as high as possible. And his approval rating among his own party is the highest of any president ever, actually. So that means he's super serving his own base. His own base loves him, and his own base is going to turn out for him. Now, if for whatever reason turnout on the Democratic side is down, because maybe we don't have an inspiring candidate and they're not running on the policies that we want them to run on, so on and so forth, then he actually has a chance of winning, even though his numbers are abysmal. But having said that, that's the only scenario that he wins re-election if you just, you know, if you just freeze this in time and, you know, fast forward to, the, to election day. That's the only way he wins, is if he has tippy-top turnout among his base and Democrats get lazy and we don't come out to vote and fucking we're not inspired and it's a shitty candidate for us. Guaranteed, his people turn out. But if turnout is high overall, he's got no chance, according to the numbers right now. Because, listen, man, this is hard to overcome. This is really hard to overcome. So when you lose... 59% of independents are saying, I will simply not vote for him. 59% of independents, that hurts, man. That really hurts. When you compare his numbers versus Obama's, 56% versus 46%, only 28% of Americans say they definitely will vote for Trump. Yeah, he's in trouble. So, But what I don't want is, is Democrats to look at this and then get lazy and go, well, we're good. We don't need to do anything. And a lot of Democrats are doing that, by the way. A lot of the corporate Democrats are just like, what do you mean? We're going to win. End of conversation. No, you still have to work. You still have to fight for your own policy vision and be clear about it and, and don't run a shitty standard politician because he's going to make his case better than you can imagine. Trump is. There's one thing he knows how to do. It's when he's backed into a corner. He knows how to start throwing haymakers and fighting. So look out because they're going to land. Some of those are going to land. So you have to fight back properly. So we'll see what happens. But these numbers do not look good for Trump. All right, now we go after Obama. This story was sad, but it shows you what goes on in our system for realsies. So we have a story here from The Hill that highlights pretty much everything that's wrong with our political system. Former President Obama spoke at an executive retreat earlier this month for leaders of Boeing defense contractors. The second consecutive year, a former president appeared at the defense contractors annual event, Bloomberg reported Monday. A spokeswoman for Obama told Bloomberg that the former president waived his speaking fee to deliver the informal address. Attendees said Obama's talk focused on economic development and his foundation's work. Boeing, the second largest defense contractor in the U.S., has donated $10 million toward Obama's presidential library and museum in Chicago, Bloomberg reported. The company has made similar donations in the past, including a $10 million gift to George W. Bush's presidential center. Bush reportedly spoke at Boeing's executive event last year. So this is devastating for a number of reasons. I mean, first and foremost... They like Obama enough where they wanted to donate $10 million to his library. Why do they like Obama so much? 
Perhaps it's because Obama didn't roll back the wars. He said he was going to. He didn't do it. Um, he was wonderful for defense contractors, and so they liked him. They made a lot of money because of Barack Obama. They made a lot of money because of George W. Bush. That's why they also donated to his library. So they're doing well because of these presidents. So they're paying them back. Gave them $10 million. And he's so buddy-buddy with them that he said, I'll even waive my fee. Hey, you've helped enough. You gave me $10 million for my library, I'll come give a, a speech and it'll all be good. These are defense contractors, in reality, offense contractors, because they're building um, weapons, in many instances, that are used to kill innocent people. And we are the ones going on offense. It's not like we're defending ourselves from fucking ragtag, ragtag militias in Yemen or some shit. So this is the problem with the system, is that you have corporations that are buddy-buddy with politicians, whether it be executives from Wall Street or whether it be uh, billionaires or whether it be um, people from the military-industrial complex. You have industry, oil industry, whatever it may be. They're far too close with politicians. They have an army of lobbyists. The lobbyists give politicians whatever they want, and then the politicians do favors for uh, the companies. And this is just a, the clearest example I've ever seen. I mean, the first thing... The first story about Obama post his presidency was that he took, I think it was $400,000 or was it $600,000? I think it was $400,000 for a speech on Wall Street. That's the first story about him after his presidency that made news. Taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from Wall Street to give speeches there. And now we know Boeing gave him $10 million for his library. He's returning the favor to Boeing. It's almost like the so-called anti-war president is very close with defense contractors, and he's close with defense contractors because they had a mutually beneficial relationship. I wonder how much money Boeing gave to Obama for his re-election campaign, or even maybe for his original election campaign. I'm sure it's a decent amount. So this is the problem. We need a separation of money and politics. You know how we have a wall of separation between church and state? We need a wall of separation between campaign finance, between um, industry and state. Total public financing of elections, no private donations, because... That's the only way to guarantee you're not going to get a system of legal open bribery. I mean, this is corruption through and through. I, if Obama did his job, Boeing would hate him. That's the, best, that's the simplest way of laying it out there. If Obama did his job right, Boeing would hate him. If I was ever president, Boeing would hate me. Why? Because they're not going to get more business. Why? Because I'm going to pull out of the wars. I'm going to cut the military budget. I'm not going to expand it. Oh, but what about you lose jobs and jobs and... Okay, well, we'll create new jobs. We'll create Green New Deal jobs. We'll have jobs in uh, uh, solar energy, renewable energy, green technology. We'll have infrastructure jobs, construction jobs. We'll have jobs, but they're not going to be creating machines of death. Obama's far too comfortable with that notion. And unfortunately, he was way too much of a status quo president, way too much of a centrist, way too willing to go along to get along with business as usual, and that's the problem. Final story of the day, and then we will end our birthday show a smidgen early.
One of the world's worst neocon warhawks uh, hasn't gone anywhere, even after all of his failures, and there are many. Um, so Max Boot, this guy right here, he tweeted the following. Take a look. We need to think of these deployments as we thought of our our Indian wars. What? <laughs> look at that phrasing, our Indian wars, which lasted 300 years, or as the British or as the British thought about their deployment on the northwest frontier, which lasted 100 years. U.S. troops are policing the frontiers of the Pax Americana. And then the actual article that he wrote is, Why winning and losing are irrelevant in Syria and Afghanistan. Why winning and losing are irrelevant in Syria and Afghanistan. You know, this is a point I've actually made for a long time that anytime somebody tells you, hey, I'm in favor of staying in Iraq, I'm in favor of staying in Afghanistan, you're supposed to say to them, okay, but define victory for me. So why are we there? What's the definition of victory? So when would we be able to theoretically declare victory and come home? And I always tell you to ask that question for a very specific reason. None of the people who would say they're still in favor of being in Iraq and Afghanistan, and in this case Syria, none of them will have an answer. Because they haven't thought that through. To them, the answer is in the process. The fact of the matter is we have a divine right to be anywhere in the world in contravention of international law and U.S. law and the U.S. Constitution. And it doesn't matter how many civilians we kill. It doesn't matter how many toes we step on doesn't matter how much of a rogue terrorist regime we act like. We're allowed to do it because we're us, and that's all the justification That's all the justification we need. That's it. We're above the law, so we can do what we want. We are the law. It's like, if you've ever seen the movie Training Day, the character Alonzo, played by Denzel Washington, the way he acts, that's the United States in the world, uh, in the world scene. That's it. So, but now we have... He's, he's admitting this up front, so usually you have to ask that question. Hey, what's victory? Define victory. And then they'll be like, and they don't have an answer. See, he's admitting that up front, which on the one hand is admirable, but on the other hand is just totally psychopathic. He's saying, yeah, no, it doesn't. it's not about winning. So what do you mean? We're, so we're, we're, gonna, we're supposed to do a permanent occupation? For what? Well, the subtext is, of course, um, because... We're the world's sole superpower, and we have a right to control world markets, and we have a right to jack natural resources, and we have a right to geopolitical dominance. So the answer is that there is no answer. The answer is basically, even though it sounds like a joke, but it's not, America, fuck yeah. And he's saying it. Why winning and losing are irrelevant. It says that there's no goal. The act of being there is correct. So just like the British Empire controlled everything, okay, that's what they did. Just like back in the day, the Roman Empire, fucking Sparta, fucking the Malian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, they just controlled shit because they're an empire. That's all the justification you need. Now it's our time. It's America. No Rules don't apply. We do what we want. End the wars. Why? No. Stay there for no reason. Winning and losing are irrelevant. Even if we lose, we win because we're just saying that. What? This son of a bitch 
could not care less about what the American people want. If you look at every poll, only 17% of Americans still wanted to be in Afghanistan as of 2013. I literally haven't seen a poll on Afghanistan since then. It was the most unpopular war, more unpopular than Vietnam, even going back to 2013. It's probably even less popular now. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about the will of the people. He wants the government to steal your money in terms, in, in terms of taxes, just jack your money, and then use that money to go bomb innocent brown people and permanently occupy everybody. This is his philosophy. This is his ideology. And this is what he's openly saying. Look at the language. The language is dripping with old-school imperialism and colonialism, settler colonialism. Think of these wars like we thought of our Indian wars. So you mean that thing where we wiped out from coast to coast Native Americans, that thing? The thing where we did a genocide, that thing? Is that what you're talking about? Think of it like that, as if it's a positive thing? Like, yeah, that's how you have to think of it. It's a good thing, right? Think of it as if how the British thought of the Northwest frontier, which lasted 100 years. The craziest thing about the neocons is that they have no real base of support, but they latch on to the Republican Party and also now latch on to the Democratic Party, and they somehow maintain control in centers of power where there's a bipartisan consensus of, we run the world, of course, but it's just a matter of to what degree. Do we invade everywhere and do boots on the ground, or do we use soft power and do air power everywhere and do drone power, and we're more managerial in how we do our, our superpower bullshit. So, but that's the spectrum of debate. That's the Overton window. For somebody like me who, just, who says, hey, maybe we should only use our military for defensive purposes. Maybe uh, we should do no offensive wars against countries that didn't attack us. I'm viewed as like the crazy person, even though my opinions are right in line with the mainstream of American society. Right in line with it. But I'm viewed as crazy. When I say, hey, maybe we should spend on our infrastructure and upgrade our, our water systems and you know, fix our airports and do Medicare for all. They look at me like I'm crazy when he's writing articles where he's like, remember when we wiped out the Native Americans? Let's do that to fucking Iraq and, and Syria and Afghanistan. We just stay there. doesn't matter if we lose. Yeah. I don't want to waste $7 trillion like we did in Iraq. I don't want to waste $2 trillion like we did in Afghanistan. I don't want to kill innocent people there. I don't want to do that. I don't want to permanently occupy for no goddamn reason other than for what's good for mineral companies and fucking oil companies. And are you kidding me? Defense contractors. He wouldn't be taken seriously in a real marketplace of ideas. But he gets along with the establishment. He gets along with the powers that be. So he's put out there like he's a serious thinker when really he's a loathsome idiot. All right. And that'll do it for the birthday show, y'all. All right, love you guys. Enjoy the rest of the day. Stay warm if you're in any of the areas across the United States that are, like, around zero degrees. It's a toasty seven degrees here at the moment, which is funny. Oh, no, it doubled. It's 14 now. But with the wind chill, it feels like negative one. So how you like them apples? Anyway, love you guys. Talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. I'm out. Peace.